Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is, or Jesus is, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and for by him, for by him, All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Verse 8, chapter 2. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head all uh, the head of all rule and authority in him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without human hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Uh, You may be seated. Usually we take a minute or so here just to for you to have a moment to reflect on the word of God. Stephen Hawking is one of the greatest theoretical physicists of our time. And you may know about him from the recent film. It was an award-winning film that came out in 2014. It's called The Theory of Everything. And it was mostly wrapped around his relationship with a, a woman and just a very interesting film. Hawking, if you know the movie or you know anything about him, he's a victim of ALS or what's called Lou Gehrig's disease. So it has a a ravaging effect on the body. And although it's crippled his body, it hasn't affected his mind. He's a brilliant man. Hawking was uh, formerly the chair of mathematics in Cambridge, uh, which was formerly held by Isaac Newton. Hawking is also the author of his best-selling book, It's called A Brief History of Time. 
And he, in this book, he lays out his view on how the world came into being and who we are as people, as a humanity. Several years ago, he delivered a much-anticipated lecture or an address to the students and invited guests at Cambridge. And, and it was the kind of thing that was sold out. Uh, it was an invitation-only kind of event, and everybody came. There was kind of a buzz on the campus, and they were leaning forward to want to hear from this brilliant man who had uh, recently written this book. And they were trying to figure out, okay, here's this guy. He's going to tell us with his brilliance about the design and hope of mankind. And here is, just in a nutshell, his conclusion at the end of the lecture. Yes, we have been designed. But since we don't know what the design is, We may as well not be. So everyone leaning forward, everyone saying, okay, here's here's one of those brilliant minds of our time. And he's going to somehow put a key in the lock and help us see something. And and yes, we're designed. Okay, what are we designed for? Well, we don't know. We, We can't figure out what we're designed for. So we might as well not be designed was his conclusion. And then he ended on this less than hopeful note. The terror which stalks my mind is since humanity has arrived on this planet by natural selection, we have arrived by aggression. The survival of the fittest, I'm assuming. My hope is humanity can survive for another hundred years from eating each other up by this aggression So scientists will have enough time to devise a plan so humans can live on other planets. That way, no one atrocity would destroy all of us at the same time. So so for Hawking, yes, there's a design, but we have no idea who the designer is or what the design is for. So we just might as well not be designed. And the hope of the future of humanity is we know we're going to be constantly aggressive towards each other. And hopefully we can get some population on some other planets so that if there is that one great atrocity on Earth, all of humanity isn't destroyed. That's the hope. And so just imagine you've you've gotten into this this uh, sacred space to hear this man and and you leave. You leave with a great hope, a great excitement for the future, a great charge for why you exist now maybe you just say well that's one bright guy just got too smart for himself i don't know Uh, francis crick he was the person who um, discovered the dna molecule he and a guy named james watson walked into a pub in england in 1953 and they announced this we found the secret of life And so what they had found was that you've seen it now, the double helix DNA molecule, which are the building blocks of humanity. In 1962, Crick won the Nobel Peace or the Nobel Prize for Medicine. And at his death, one of his esteemed colleagues said, Crick will be remembered as one of the most brilliant and influential scientists of all time. Not just of his time. But of all time. So here, this man, coupled with another brilliant scientist, they discovered this DNA molecule, which is extremely important to know. And you understand how that's the building block of humanity. 1981, Crick wrote a book called Life Itself. And so, again, like uh, like Hawking, he's trying to forward his idea of life itself. 
And in the book, he explained that the, the complexity of the DNA molecule, the, the complexity of life, made it unlikely for life to develop on earth by itself. It's just completely too complex. It couldn't have developed all by itself. And so he advanced this theory, and this theory is called directed panspermia. That's the title of his theory, directed panspermia. And basically what he says is the DNA molecules, the building blocks of humanity are so complex, they couldn't have randomly come together. So somebody must have put that DNA on this planet. So he thinks some other being from another planet sent a rocket ship or came and they basically uh, put the DNA around the planet And then the planet over evolutionary time, these DNA molecules that are so complex did come together. And this is why we exist today. The final chapter of his book is titled, Should We Infect the Galaxy? And so he's dealing with the ethical questions of, okay, so we've arrived. Is it our responsibility to take some of our DNA and go populate another planet? Would you feel good about that? Our world taking its DNA and its history and populating another planet. Our hope for Crick, much like Hawking, is if we can just get life on other planets, then no matter how bad we may be, you know, life will continue on. Well, well, these are the two of the brightest minds of our time. This is what they believe. This is what they believe about who we are. This is what they believe about what our hope is. And this morning, I'm very glad to uh, suggest a counter perspective. And that's the perspective of the Bible. And I want to communicate that perspective by looking at this book of Colossians, because Paul says a lot. It could have been easy for me to go back and just pick up a story at the end of the Gospels that I thought, no, Paul is saying what is true here, and he's offering a counter perspective, and we'll just have to pick up on some of those themes as we look through. And I've collected Paul's thoughts under three headings, who we are and what has happened. So Paul's offering a biblical counter perspective. Who are we and what has happened? Number two. Who is Jesus and what has he done? And number three, what is our hope? So let's look at those in order. Who we are and what has happened. Chapter 1, verse 16. I'll just let you follow along. I'll mention the references here. All things were created by God and for God. So, So immediately we begin to see this counter perspective. We're not God. I don't know if that comes as a shock to anyone here. But you're not God. Humanity is not God. We are created. We're not the creator. There is a God who has created all things. And all things either live underneath his rule and or for his purposes. Created things are things that are designed. They're not things that happen by random. So if there is a creator and there is... Uh, then it, all of his creation serves some particular purpose, whether we recognize that purpose or not. But you see, if you believe that you are created from nothing, if you believe you're created from nothing, then you, have, you, you don't have anyone to ultimately answer to. You just answer to yourself. You become the center. You become the, the measuring stick for your life, for your morality. And it's very difficult for philosophers to construct 
purpose or meaning in life if we have no designer. And so philosophers constantly are wrestling with that question if you don't have an ultimate creator. And although we are created by God, something has obviously gone wrong. We know this in two primary ways. Number one, you just know the world is not as it should be. You look around, you read, you watch the television, and then you know you're not as you should be. You don't even have to look at the world. You just know there's something wrong with me. I've got some kind of issues. And so what's gone wrong? And Paul explains why what's gone wrong. Chapter 1, verse 13, Paul tells us we live now in this planet under what he calls a domain of darkness. We live in the domain of darkness. This darkness connotates uh a captivity where we're held in slavery where it's like we're imprisoned in some dark we're we're imprisoned in some dark cell and humanity now has a corrupt compass heading it can't get itself out of this darkness we live in this domain and if we have a compass it points in the wrong direction so we can never seem to get out of this domain chapter 1 verse 12 then Paul explains that we live in this darkness because we are alienated and hostile to God. The reason the darkness exists is because as humanity, we're alienated, we're hostile, we're hostile to God. We were created for a particular purpose, but we've become alienated or we've become hostile to what God has to say for our lives. Now, perhaps Crick is correct saying aliens have visited the planet. And who are the aliens according to the Bible? You. Me. We're alienated from God. There was a particular purpose. There was a particular design. But now we've become aliens. We, we've, we, we're on this dark domain, this planet. And we're designed by God and for God. And, and like our solar system is designed, we're designed to have God at the center. But when you take the sun out of the center, what happens to the planets? They all begin to collide with each other. And so we live in a world where God is not at the center anymore. So we're not surprised that as countries or as people or as marriages or as churches or as a community, what are we doing? We're constantly colliding with each other. It's no surprise because the thing that was supposed to be at the very center is not holding all things together as it was designed to do. And so we're finally, we're we're always finding ourselves in these collision courses. The Bible calls that, the theological word for all of that is called sin. We've rejected the creator and we've put something else largely ourselves, at the center, and we want everything to revolve around us. So sin is not something you do. It's an attitude. I want to be master of my fate. I want to be captain of my soul. At the moment, creation rejects the creator. All of creation falls into this chaos, colliding with each other. Chapter 2, verse 13 So we are dead. In verse 14, we have a record debt. We live in this domain of darkness. The reason we live in this domain of darkness is because we've become alienated and hostile. We've lost the center. We don't have a compass heading that can get us out. And so we find ourselves in this particular condition. We're dead and we have a record debt. 
when I was on the Young Life staff and I was communicating the gospel to uh, high school students, and I was trying to communicate this idea of, of we've, we've gotten out of our original environment and so we're, de- we're dying. And one of the best visual illustrations I would use for that is a goldfish. And so I would talk and I would have this goldfish in this little, you know, standard little jar. It's poor goldfish. I mean, they just live with no, I mean, it was no rocks, no tr- fake tree. It was just a goldfish swimming around, you know. And so I pick up this goldfish and I say, see, it's, it's made for this particular environment. It's living, it's thriving, it's breathing, breathing, it's, it's in the place it's designed. And then I would take this goldfish and just say, imagine the goldfish saying, hey, this just doesn't seem like good life. I'm looking out and it appears as if there's all kinds of life happening and I'd rather get out here and see what life is all about. So the goldfish decides to hop out of the bowl. And I take the goldfish out and I put it on a towel, start flopping around. And all the teenagers are like, please save the goldfish. I mean, the panic, you could imagine. And what's happening to the goldfish? It's gasping for its original environment. It was designed for a particular environment. And you may say it's still alive, but what do you know? It's dying. It has no hope of flipping itself back into its original environment. Somebody has to come out, come from the outside, who has the power to pick it up and put it back. It's an original environment. And so this is exactly what Paul is saying. We're outside of our original environment, and we may be all flopping around here and calling it life, but if you're outside of your original environment, you're on your way to a certain death. No matter how exciting your current flopping around condition is, we're all gasping, desperately gasping to get back in our original design. And if we don't know Jesus, our gasping is just grotesque. Food, sex, money, popularity, fame, fortune. It's an endless list trying to get some oxygen in our life and make it have meaning. And it doesn't because we're outside of that original design. We are as good as dead. We have a record debt which stands against us. Perhaps this applies to one or two of you here. But if you ever had to file bankruptcy you would find out that when you file bankruptcy, there's actually certain debts that are not bankruptable. In other words, you come into court and say to the judge, I'm bankrupt. I have no money. I I can't possibly pay off the debt. And they say, okay, you're filing chapter 7, chapter 13, chapter 11, whatever you're filing, you're saying you don't have the possibility to pay. Right. Okay. So you're bankrupt. Right. And when you leave, you still owe money. Because there are certain debts that aren't bankruptable. And the term they use for that, it's not dischargeable. Even though you don't have money to pay, and you've already said I don't have money to pay, and they're taking away a lot of the debt, there's certain debt that's not dischargeable. And you still have to pay even though you have no ability to pay. And that's really what Paul is saying here. We we have a debt. It's so large that we can't possibly pay it. And even if we could pay some of it off or somehow let somebody else pay some of it, there's some that just can't be discharged. So chapter two, verse four and eight. 
finally, because we're in this terrible condition of darkness and debt, we are, according to Paul and the Bible, we are easily deluded. We're easily taken captive by philosophies and human traditions. It, they, they offer some kind of false hope. We're not surprised. We're, we're the fish that's flopping around. We, we're gasping for some kind of air. We're gasping for some kind of life. So, so we gasp and say, I'll just hold on to any philosophy. I'll just hold on to any kind of human tradition. I, I'll, I'll try, to, try to do anything to keep myself alive or moving forward. Most of you know that um, I've recently returned from India, and I've went with a few of the folks here and, and really had a great time. But one of the hardest things about being in India and, and maybe other cultures, but India particularly, is just their their attachment to their belief system, which is Hinduism. And in Hinduism, Hinduism says that uh, that it has a belief in reincarnation. And so you've got to work to be better each life. And over hundreds or thousands of life, lives, you finally reach a, a, state, a state of perfection. And so it was explained to me this way. A human being has to live many, many lives and undergo many, many experiences before they attain perfection. That's what they believe. The Bible informs us. It gives a counter perspective that we're dead and we have a record debt. And it doesn't matter how much you work in one life or if you had a million lives, you'd have a non-dischargeable debt that can't, you cannot reach perfection. It's not possible on your own in any way. So there has to be another way. And I am thankful to stand up to you today and say, <laughs> there's another way. There is another way. There is a hope. And that hope is in a person of Jesus Christ. So who is Jesus and what has he done? Chapter 1, verse 15 and 19. Jesus is God in the flesh. Christians believe that Jesus or God has visited our planet. Let me say that again. What we believe is that God has actually visited this dark domain. That's what we believe. And that's why Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. We live in a dark domain and light has come into the world. And that light is the light of men and his name is Jesus. And if you follow him, you will follow the light. You will live in the light. And so we celebrate this gift Every Christmas, we remember the virgin birth. We remember the incarnation, which means God coming in the flesh. But I think we have to admit, even though we may be familiar with the story, that if you had never heard this story, it sounds certainly out of the ordinary, does it not? You're saying we live on a planet and God actually came to the planet? I mean, isn't that a stretch? And the answer is, well, yes, it is. But one of the things you have to ask yourself was, well, if you don't believe that, what are some of the alternatives to that possibility? Peter Singer, an influential atheist, here's what he says. We can assume that somehow in the primeval soup, we got collections of molecules which became self-replicating. I don't think we need any miraculous, anything miraculous or mysterious. 
So we don't need the miraculous. We don't need God visiting the planet. We don't need anything mysterious. Here's what we can say for sure. Somehow, in the primeval soup, collections of molecules became self-replicating. Well, to me, that seems like it opens up a lot of room for mystery. And it doesn't seem to me that's too dissimilar from a virgin birth. One writer said, everybody believes in a virgin birth. It's just, how does it come about? Stephen Hawking, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Now, again, does this not sound like the virgin birth? Spontaneous creation. But see, when you get into these sort of arguments, it's like, well, no, we can't believe in the miraculous, but we just believe in spontaneous creation. Well, what's that called? That's called miraculous. Quentin Smith, a prominent atheist philosopher, the most reasonable belief. So the title of the sermon is, what do we believe? question at the end of the sermon is, what do you believe? Quentin Smith, the most reasonable belief is that we came from nothing, by nothing, and we are for nothing. We should acknowledge our foundation in nothingness. Praise the Lord. I mean, what a great song to sing. Let's sing about nothingness. And, and we, we should feel awe at the marvelous fact that we have a chance to participate briefly in this incredible sunburst that interrupts without any reason at all. Now, you can listen to what the Bible has to say, and you can dismiss it as, come on, the virgin birth, God visited the planet. I mean, that's, I mean it's ridiculous, is it not? And let's just say it is. What are some of the alternatives? The alternatives is what I'm trying to say. They sound as miraculous as what the Bible is saying. There's a lot of mystery. And so when we stand up or when I stand up and we say we, we as Christians believe in the miraculous, we don't, we're not ashamed of that. We, we're not ashamed that we don't know everything. And thankfully, God Almighty has come down himself and in his word to tell us what we need to understand. We can understand why G.K. Chesterton once said it was after he read The Atheist that led him to Jesus Christ. Christians believe in the miraculous, and we believe that God visited our planet. We believe that He got God visited for a particular purpose. And we could unpack this purpose week after week, but I just want to show you three words in the text. Rescue, redeem, and reconcile. So who is Jesus? We know he's God in the flesh. Why did he come? He came for many, many reasons. But here in the text, chapter 1, verse 13, he delivered, or sometimes it's uh, translated as he rescued. Jesus came because he's on a rescue mission. This is a rescue mission that SEAL Team 6 couldn't possibly understand or undertake. He's coming, he's rescuing people out of this domain of darkness, and he's bringing them into his own eternal kingdom. Chapter 1, verse 14, he's redeeming, he's releasing a prisoner who's in prison from a payment. And it's why, it's why at the cross Jesus cries out, it's finished, it's paid. This, this, uh, this debt that is non-bankruptable, this debt that's not dischargeable, Christ has come and he has discharged that debt. 
You see, there is no debt. There is no sin. And a few of you need to hear this. There is nothing that you have done that is not dischargeable by the work of Jesus Christ. Amen. Not one thing. No matter in your mind how terrible you think it is. Jesus has paid it all. He has rescued. He has redeemed. Finally, he has reconciled. 122. He's bringing two parties back together. In the Old Testament, a lot of the language that God uses, or the Bible, the Bible writers use, between the people of God and God himself is the language of divorce. Marriage and divorce. And so Jesus has come back to put these two parties back together and he's making peace by the blood of the cross. These three R's are what Christians believe in and what they call are the gospel. Or the gospel is often called good news. And when we say that, what we mean is it's news, it's not advice. I'm not coming here today to give you advice, thankfully. I'm coming here to make a proclamation about something that has actually taken place in history. I'm not coming to say, here's how you can work better. I'm saying, here's what God has done. It's a very different message. Religion is what you do to get to God. Christianity is what God has done to get to you. And so today, I proclaim something. I say something has happened. Look at it. So finally, what is our hope? Chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. God has raised Jesus from the dead. We, we need some proof. It's wonderful that Christ died for us, but lots of people can be martyrs. How do we know that he actually paid the penalty? How, how do we know he, he absorbed all that we owed? How do we know he can rescue us from our own grave? I've told you many times that one of the jobs I had in, in the summer when I was in college was, was uh, working at a graveyard. And so one of the jobs I had was I had to paint the crypt that they would put the casket in. And you know, you've seen them. It's like a honeycomb, right? And Mrs. Phillips here and Mr. Phillips is going to go right here. And so we had this funeral where Mrs. Phillips was already inserted and Mr. Phillips was coming in that day. And so somebody had to get in and paint the crypt because it was concrete gray and we wanted to make it look nice. Why? I mean, I don't know. It's not like Mr. Phillips knew. Hey, it's glad I'm going into a nice little white spot. But guess who got the call to lay in there and paint it? So I'm laying there next to Mrs. Phillips. I'm just using this name, obviously. And I'm just painting. Who has the power to get us out of that place? See, that's the destiny for everyone here. And it's great that Christ died, but I need to see if somebody can defeat death. And our hope is that Jesus actually defeated death. That's why the empty tomb is so critical. We're not following somebody who, who gave us some advice, but he's still dead. We're following somebody who is currently alive today. And he can rescue out you out of that crypt. And we are made to be alive together with him. Chapter 1, verse 27. So our original environment, getting back to the fish, 
Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I think one of the things that Paul's trying to communicate there, this word glory means honor, dignity, worth, splendor, perfection. All of these attributes of God. So we are made by God and we are made for God. We are made by God to be receptors of his glory. All of these great characteristics pouring out of God into us. And we are made for God. All of those great things coming to us. And what do we do? We reflect them back to God. It's like if you watch an actress or an athlete and they win some kind of award. And they stand up and all the spotlights on them. And the best speeches start out with what? I'd like to thank whoever got, you know, my mom and dad, my coach, whatever. See what they're doing? All the glory is coming to me. But I want to tell you, the only reason I'm standing on the stage is because this person. That's what we were made for. To stand up and as God's spotlight, all of his glory is pouring into me. I'm made to say But I want you to know why I'm standing here. It's not on my own. I couldn't possibly get myself back up into this environment. I'm into this environment because somebody has come and rescued me and brought me here. And I'm just a mirror to reflect back the glory that belongs to Christ. We are made for glory. We are headed to glory. We're not headed to nothingness. Praise the Lord. We're not headed to another planet. Praise the Lord. We're, we're headed to glory. And we know we are because of the resurrection of Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, this is uh, the same message that's being spoken in, in homes, in huts, in cathedrals, in strip malls. In a field, at the beach, here. This eternal message of hope. But what we are saying, we we are easily, easily deluded. We're easily distracted. We easily hold on to other things. And and I pray that by your power, your work of the Holy Spirit, we see something today. See something truthful, and especially for those who have questions or doubts or just skeptics, that they would they would take hold, that they would be taken hold of by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.